This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 35, China Sails Ahead. Way back at the beginning of our voyage, we saw that China long ago briefly led the world on the sea. But the world did not know it. Even the Chinese themselves knew or cared very much about it. The outside world, lured by what China seemed to offer, seized the saltwater initiative, as we have seen. As the People's Republic of China, PRC, began to undergo massive internal reorganization and consolidation, it began with Mao, the pilot of the revolution, dubbed the Great Helmsman. But Mao, who loved to swim, did not direct his eye seaward. He died, still in power, in 1976. Two years later, by 1978, Deng Xiaoping had emerged as paramount leader. That little fellow, as Mao called him, counters the argument that the world belongs to the tall. Deng ultimately would create a legacy greater than Mao's, for it was constructive rather than destructive. Although a politician, not an economist, Deng is identified with big economic change, a manager of events, not a thinker. He revealed no special vision and liked to think of himself as simply a pragmatist. Referring to ideology, his frequently quoted aphorism was, It doesn't matter what color a cat is, so long as it catches mice. Deng focused on opening the nation to the outside world to get money and knowledge, investment and technology. He began to allow investment by the overseas Chinese community, even beyond Taiwan. He saw China's backwardness as due to closing its door to the outside. He felt that China could not rebuild without such interaction. Implicitly, he criticized Mao's wanting to go it alone. Deng will be remembered for the economic revolution he initiated. It would benefit not only China, but the world economy as well. His mantra, to get rich is glorious, captivated the crowd, and peasant farmers responded enthusiastically. Mao led us to stand up. Deng led us to eat. And we Americans could cheaply buy our underwear and iPhone assembly. China's present, as well as China's past, reflects many Chinas. China is like Europe, linguistically and geographically split. The coastal versus the interior is one such division. Deng looked to the traditionally maritime southern coast as his laboratory. Thus, 
it became the source for China's initial new wealth springing from exploiting oceanic space, using ocean as avenue for the flow of materials and goods. The southeast coast itself has many complexities, notably the Pearl River Delta and the Yangtze River Delta. They are highly competitive. Even the cuisines are rivalrous. The Cantonese denounce Shanghai food as barely edible. Adding to the mix are the cultures in between the two. In Fujian province between the Pearl and the Yangtze, mountains isolate the coast from the rest of China and internally as well. It is Fissiparis, broken into many parts, with ten mutually unintelligible dialects spoken. The sea traditionally formed the only linkage among its spaces. Farther south, home to Hong Kong and Guangzhou, formerly Canton, the city's Pearl River Delta enjoys easy access to the sea, plus low labor costs, as well as a tradition of dealing successfully with the Yangkweza, foreign devils, as the Chinese called the outsiders. These factors provided a powerful impetus to Hong Kong entrepreneurship. With Hong Kong setting the pace, constantly moving up the chain of economic sophistication from seaport entrepot, trading center, to light industry, and then services, at the same time remaining a port. Hong Kong created a potent combination of mainland factories churning out goods, with the city providing financial and trade services. The Pearl River Delta is smaller and less connected to the rest of China than the Yangtze River Delta, one of the world's great economic regions. Shanghai, calling itself Head of the Dragon, serves as its metropolis. Shanghai held a powerful tradition before 1949 as the main business center of Pacific Asia, the greatest of the treaty ports, important as a regional port even before the British arrival. In the British era, Shanghai handled three-quarters of China's foreign trade. And what a location! The city sits at the mouth of the world's third longest river, which provides a major transportation artery to the interior. The delta anchors a huge web of tributaries, part of that interior, watery world of South China that a millennium ago first catapulted the country to wealth. In this space, many other cities have arisen with a population all told of several hundred million people, all being consumers. Many are now part of a rising middle class with a big appetite for spending. Visitors note the ubiquitous building crane, evidence of rapid growth of infrastructure underway, roads, 
bridges, expressways, subways, airports, recently planned, under construction, or completed. Nearby, on the Delta, Yangshan is now the world's largest deep-water port, connected by a six-lane, 35-kilometer bridge, one of the world's longest. Some say it's uh, unusable in wind and fog, but it adds greatly to traffic capacity as a connector to the port. The traditional port on the Wangpu River at Shanghai's center is too narrow and congested for large ships, but unlike the Hudson, for a long time you could still hear the sound of boat whistles rising from the river. More than 50% of Shanghai's economy is services, but industry is important as well. Automobiles, petrochemicals, and shipbuilding with the world's largest yard. Upriver, secondary history is most important, turning out textiles, computer chips, pharmaceuticals. Shanghai carries a legacy of cultural cosmopolitanism that Mao's China did not entirely smother. A stroll down the bun shows some of the pre-1949 physical monuments, with the customs house, banks, clubs, hotels, now increasingly overwhelmed by a forest of gleaming skyscrapers. Now, Shanghai is a magnet for the rest of China, which gives it domestic diversity. People flock from all over the countryside to reach for new opportunities in the city. Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew once remarked, If you look at London, Shanghai, and New York, the people who make the place sparkle, they give it that zest, the scintillating brilliance, were not born there. Shanghai, urban, and increasingly urbane, hopes to recapture the 1920s heyday of sophistication and carry it into the international realm as never before. Shanghai may now be the engine of China's economic growth, its major seaport and center for export-oriented manufacturing, but the Chinese want it to become a financial capital as well. In a speech at Shanghai in 1981, Deng predicted that, barring the unforeseen, Shanghai would become a comprehensive center for industry, finance, and high technology. It will leave Hong Kong and Singapore in its wake, he boasted. Note the nautical metaphor. But factional politics may determine the outcome. The economic may not prevail. Beijing, with its political heft, is also in the running. Government remains the prime mover in the Chinese economic sphere, including the maritime. We begin with transport and communications, Deng said. The Chinese seem to understand that logistics are the bedrock of economic development, and because of their authoritarian government, 
they are able to take quick action to emphasize that development. China's attention to its ports, part of the passion for infrastructure, has ensured that port capacities have remained ahead of the demands imposed by massive increases in foreign trade. In contrast with the United States, whose ports struggle to keep up. In 1979, Deng established special economic zones, which were coastal areas with more liberal laws relating to economic development than the rest of the country. These were intended to be springboards for the new China, places for experimental entry into the world economy. Deng chose sites, he said, mainly for geographical reasons, but. Treaty ports too must have factored into his decision. Two of these new zones, Shantou, Swatou, as it used to be known, on the shore of the South China Sea, and Xiamen, formerly Amoy, on the Taiwan Straits, lying just across from Taiwan, are former treaty ports. They are identified with the influence of the Atlantic world. And with the Chinese diaspora, they are also places of family origin for many who now live overseas, especially in Southeast Asia, which ties them to the outside world. Zhuhai the Third pushes against Macau, long a Portuguese colony. Shenzhen the Fourth abuts British Hong Kong. These two were not treaty ports or ports at all; they sprang from green fields prompted by economic opportunity. Take the case of Shenzhen. Forty years ago or so, it was simply duck farms and rice paddies, entirely rural, just across the river, separating it from Hong Kong's new territories. Shenzhen now. Is a city of more than 12 million people, a sheltered port deep enough for the largest container ships. Its aggregation of anchorages and docks make it a leading global container port, and it is home to many factories and close to others churning out consumer goods largely for the American market: blue jeans, computer screens. And artificial Christmas trees, as well as many other items, this we can say is part of Dung's legacy. On March tenth, nineteen eighty-seven, a plane took off from Beijing, circled the city, and headed east to what the Chinese press called the vast sea of the motherland. A place not clearly defined, but heading to the Gulf of Bohai, with the Yellow Sea and the Pacific beyond. Aboard were members of the family of the recently deceased Deng Xiaoping. Deng's widow headed the delegation aboard, and with it rested the ashes of the great man. When the plane reached the Gulf of Bohai, the passengers knelt in the cabin, 
while the ashes were scattered along with flower petals into the waters below. The news agency Xinhua proclaimed, Deng loved the sea for his whole life. The many ups and downs of his political life were just like the sea waves. Did Deng think about the importance that ocean could offer in the generating of wealth? He did not articulate this explicitly, insofar as I know, but perhaps his actions are enough And clearly, his wish to have his ashes scattered at sea tells us something. China's oceanic renaissance today owes more to Deng than to any other person. Perhaps, in the long run, Deng's policies ultimately will be regarded as China's true revolution. This is too soon to tell, since a reversion to Maoism seems likely, as the Chinese Communist Party tenaciously clings to its power. What is certain is that China will not revert to a shadowy international importance. Next time... In our final port of call on this voyage we're sharing together, we'll take a final look at China. Remember, in Episode 2, Early China and the Sea, we left China abandoning its maritime role some 600 years ago. But please recall that China then was the richest and most advanced nation in the world. Now, China is experiencing an oceanic rebirth on a global not regional scale. This is an extraordinary experience for China, which never before was more than an East Asian power. So, join us next time for episode 36, China's Oceanic Rebirth. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by Charlotte Allard, in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buisha de Foray. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>